0: So I just returned from New Zealand. I had the great fortune uh, to be invited down there to give the keynote presentation at Hui 2023. Uh, It's the annual conference hosted by the Restaurant Association of New Zealand. It was in coordination with Fine Food New Zealand, so a big trade show downstairs, uh, and then smaller panel discussions, presentations, workshops upstairs. Uh, It was a two-day event. I gave uh, the keynote on day one uh, and then was invited back to give a workshop the following morning. On today's episode, I want to share my takeaways from that show Uh, Because there were a couple of key ones uh, that's worth sharing with you. Uh, And then the second half of the episode, I want to share my takeaways from uh, the nearly 10 days that I spent in New Zealand. It was the first time I was ever there. It's the furthest I've ever traveled in my life. And I had an absolute blast. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy. A podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week, I leverage my uh, 20 plus years uh, in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more sustainable business. I also work directly with owners and operators all over the world through my P3 Mastermind program. To date, we've got more than 85 members of the program in three different groups. The program works, the impact we're making works. So listen, if you're struggling to generate consistent, predictable 20% profit each and every month, then reach out, get in touch, set up a free strategy session with someone from my team. We'll get to learn more about you and your restaurant. You'll get to learn more about the program and see if you're a good fit for the program. There's absolutely no pressure to join, but just set up a call and learn more about it. The way to do that is by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Set up a call that's convenient for you. And again, we'll see where we go from there. That link is in the show notes. Are you frustrated with managing your catering and private events with pen and paper or using outdated programs? Introducing Triple Seat, the catering sales and event management software built for hospitality professionals by hospitality professionals. With Triple Seat, you will increase revenue and efficiency all while streamlining your operations. Let Triple Seat be your catering and event management assistant. Generate leads, create tailored BEOs, facilitate online discussions, obtain electronic signatures, process payments, and everything in between, Triple Seat has you covered. Elevate and simplify your event management. Take it to the next level with Triple Seat so you can focus on what truly matters, providing unforgettable experiences for your clients. For more information, visit TripleSeat.com slash restaurant strategy. That's TripleSeat.com slash restaurant strategy. And yep, that link is in the show notes. Now, uh, I've talked about uh, my travel uh, in the past. I'll certainly talk about it again in the future. Something I've said over and over again is that travel changes you. It, it, it's changed me every time I uh, I go to another country. Every time I go to a different place in this country, um, I, I learn more about myself. I learn more about the world, and uh, that helps feed my curiosity. That helps me do my job better. Helps bring uh, helps me bring compassion and empathy to the work that I do. I, I, I learn by going. Now, I travel because I love to travel, but oftentimes I travel too for work. I travel to go speak. I travel to go visit clients. I did an episode, uh, I don't know, last year sometime that I, where I recapped because 2022 was a very busy year for me traveling. Uh, a lot of it for work, uh, some of it for fun. And I did a whole episode and it talked about how travel changes you. On that episode, I also shared uh, sort of a personal story about how my first time out of the country, I was uh, 15 years old. Um, I was in high school and uh, and 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 that changed me. I went to Italy, spent nearly three weeks uh, touring all over the country. Went with family, uh, or went, went with friends who had family over there. Um, so I got the tourist experience. I also uh, seemed to get the locals' experience, uh, and I and I had a phenomenal time. And it was I don't know twenty plus years before I ever left the country again. Uh, that was partially due to the industry that I'm in. Uh, it's very expensive. It's difficult to uh, to take time off. But in 2018, uh, my wife and I uh, had a conversation. Conversation, and I said, hey listen, um, I-, I really want to travel more. Travel um, uh, means a great deal to me, and it's amazing that I really haven't done much of it. Uh, and I know she loved to travel, too, more than that. Uh, we also had a son, who at the time was three years old, and I said, I want him to travel, because I want him to see the world, I want him to understand how big this world is, and, and at the same time, how small this world is, um, how similar we are, uh, and-, and-, and to experience a lot of different cultures. So we committed ourselves to going to what we thought was going to be one trip every year, uh, as the three of us, right, all together. And uh, we took that first trip in 2019. We went to Paris. Uh, we booked a trip to Spain for 2020 that got shredded because of the pandemic. Uh, and we didn't travel 2020 and 2021, as as many as many people didn't. And then 2022, we made up for it. We went on a bunch of different trips. I've documented that on the podcast before. Uh, and now 23, we've gone on a, on a couple of trips. This was uh, by far uh, the biggest trip we've ever gone on, the biggest trip that we will go on um, this year. If you don't travel, I would urge you to Travel Now, I know what you're going to say. It's expensive, and I get that, and uh, it's time-consuming, and I get that it's hard to leave your businesses. Even if you just go to another state, another part of the country, you will see uh, that things run just a little bit differently. You will come to appreciate the different ways that things run. I have done that. It's inevitable when you visit different states, different areas, different cultures, let alone other countries, uh, which is certainly true. Um, it opens your eyes to it if you don't travel man I, I would i would urge you to take even a long weekend once a year um, to just go try a bunch of different restaurants see what different regions are doing see what different markets are doing that's gonna make you a better business person but really I'm also talking about uh, personally per, uh, personal development um, it's just gonna it's gonna soften you it softens me every time i go because I can't be in control I got to go with the flow I, I've got to um, be more aware of my surroundings and uh, pay attention to the cultures and the new norms in those new areas. Man, that's true when I go to South Carolina, it's true when I go to New Zealand, it's true when I've gone to Italy. So if you don't travel, I would urge you to think about how to put travel in, again, even just to another state for a long weekend once a year. um, It will uh, will influence you, it will impact you for sure, because travel changes you. Now, over the course of this episode, I want to spend the first half of the episode really talking about the Hui show uh, because there were a whole bunch of panel discussions, presentations, workshops, talks, uh, one of which I gave. I was invited to give the keynote, which I was uh, humbled to be able to do, and I was surrounded with a lot of really smart people. So I want to share a little bit of uh, what I shared in my keynote, but really I want to share with you uh, some of my experiences in talking to people over the course of that show, over the two days. Um, I want to I want to share with you what I heard uh, when other people took. The stage. So again, Hospo Hui 2023, it took place uh, in Auckland. Auckland is on the North Island. So if you're looking at a map, there's the North Island and the South Island. Uh, I was there in June. Uh, that is the middle of their winter. Uh, Auckland is certainly more mild um, than uh, places further south. Later in our trip, we went down to Queenstown, which was much more winter like. Um, but in talking with people there, in learning from people there, I had a couple of key takeaways, five that I really want to share with you. So one of the big sponsors, the presenting sponsor for the event, was American Express, and they had um, they had a representative there from Amex um, to address the crowd, really to 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 open uh, to open the show, and he shared a couple of really interesting statistics. One that keeps popping out at me uh, right from the beginning. He did this. Uh, he gave a quick five-minute uh, welcome uh, at the very beginning of the show, and he said, on average, Amex cardholders spend about three times as much as Visa and MasterCard holders. And he said, what's interesting is that there are plenty of places, uh, plenty of businesses that don't accept American Express probably because uh, they are more expensive uh, processing charges. But if it's a difference between 2.5 and 3, or 2.9 and 3.5, whatever those uh, percentages are from your processor, there's a, there's a difference. But it's maybe half a percentage point. I'm sure it's not a full percentage point, though maybe for some of you. And what he's saying, though, is that we're, um, that a lot of businesses, he finds, are, you know, Pennywise, pound foolish, that they're trying to save a couple of pennies on a half a percent or a percent as far as processing fees. And that's because there are rewards points and and other benefits that Amex cardholders get that need to be paid for somehow. But the bigger thing is, right, Pennywise, pound foolish, that, that there's all of this other revenue that's being left uh, on the table. That if people know that they can't or realize that they can't use their Amex, uh, maybe they won't patronize a place. And the people who who are passing over your business would probably the, statistic, the statistics show would probably be spending more money and much more money than the other cardholders in that place. As the uh, as the world goes away from cash, the way we think about and deal with credit cards becomes really really crucial. You know, uh, and, and I can't urge you enough this statistic popped out at me i always felt it was foolish for people not to accept American Express, but I never realized why I felt this way, and this guy articulated it in a really, uh, in a really clear and succinct way. Bottom line is, here, me personally, I like to travel with American Express. Um, that's just me personally. I'm not trying to push that on anybody, uh, but I like the fraud protections that uh, that exist. I like that there's uh, no spending limit, that I'm not going to, you know, especially when I'm traveling in other countries, I, want, I can be responsible for how much I'm going to spend. I, I know my budget, um, but I don't like to be in a in a foreign city at a restaurant. Um, that w- maybe there's a language barrier and have a card get declined or it's not going through. And then I got to get on my phone, uh, get on the phone with my bank back in the United States. I just don't want any of that. And I find it's much uh, easier for me to travel with uh, the American Express card because of some of the um, some of the access and protections that exist there. That's me, and I'm guessing that there are a lot of other thousands or millions of other travelers and diners. Um, who feel the same way there's just it, it's easier than with other cards uh, and i i have other cards and i've tried using other cards this is just easy now again i mentioned the fraud protection for me especially when i'm traveling to a foreign country um, that's a particular interest to me um that at, that at any point uh, if there's something that's been compromised i know amex will have my back and it's had my back in the past so that Amex statistic was really interesting. On average, Amex cardholders will spend three times or more uh, per diner uh, than a Visa cardholders and MasterCard holders. So why wouldn't you accept Ma- uh, Amex? Um, it sort of baffles me why, why we wouldn't. Again, this idea of penny-wise, pound-foolish. The other thing that uh, one of my other takeaways uh, from the show, there was this whole panel uh, about this, but it was how uh, New Zealand um, was perhaps uh, affected even more by the pandemic uh, than we were. And um, I certainly um, focus very much on the United States because it's where I live. It's where most of my clients are. Uh, But they were affected by the pandemic um, simply because they rely so heavily on foreign workers, especially in the hospitality industry. So when the pandemic hit and they closed the borders, they were very slow to reopen the visa process. Um, to get work visas for people to come back in. And again, they cater to a lot of people coming from Europe to come work there. Uh, A lot of people coming from um, uh, UK and continental Europe uh, and also uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia who come there to work, especially during the high season, uh, depending what island you're on. That struck me that we've got labor issues in our country, but they have a different kind of labor issue. They've got a labor issue where they just don't have the people that they were relying on for the decades prior. And that's really... Uh, affected their business that that struck me as um as maybe we were in a bubble, like we we thought here in the United States, uh, the things were so bad, you know, wages keep rising, it's hard to find good people and all of that, but they just can't find people, uh, period, the end, and they've got a lot of restaurants in there. It's a big, thriving economy, a a tourist-heavy economy. So as you can imagine, there are a lot of restaurants and hotels that cater to the tourists. That struck me, uh, and again, this is something that, unless you travel, unless you realize it, um, you wouldn't realize it. And again, this is something that came out through my conversations with people at the show. The other thing is, and, and we you know we don't really think about it too much. I mean, we hear it on the news and all that, but in New Zealand, they've been particularly affected by extreme weather patterns over the last, specifically, the last 18 months. And yeah, we watch on the news here about these wildfires and the smoke and the, the extreme heat and all that. We understand the realities, or I think uh, most of us understand the realities of uh, climate change and what it's doing to our weather patterns and what it's going to do to our world. But there, they're an Island in the middle of uh, in the middle of the ocean, or two islands in the middle of the ocean, and they are much uh, much more sensitive um, to the to the uh, the changes in weather patterns. And extreme weather has really impacted them. Not only um, not only a, on a on a climate uh, standpoint, but on a day-to-day business level standpoint, to the point where there was flooding, there were uh, there were shutdowns, there were uh, highways which shut down because and people just couldn't get to them. So, I mean, total loss of business for days or weeks at a time. I never thought of that before because we've got extreme heat. Okay, people don't want to go outside. We've got to try to convince them to come outside, but they're allowed outside. They can travel, they can make the, the three-mile trip to your restaurant. It's not like the roads are shut down and there. Sometimes roads were shut down because of these extreme weather patterns. That, that just struck me as sort of um, what we might have in store for us, what's, um, what, what's coming down the pike. One panel I particularly loved is this uh, as a panel that was happening very early in the show that was all about what they call the town square versus the suburbs, right? Town square beyond, uh, the downtown area, right? The CBD, what they call the central business district, right? That these downtown areas versus the suburbs. And there's certainly been, uh, they've been impacted by remote work that as workers have gone completely remote or maybe even just partially remote, uh, it impacts the businesses that are downtown. It also impacts the businesses and the kind of businesses that can thrive out in the suburbs. And there was this whole conversation, I feel like it's a conversation I've had on this podcast a little bit, um, but I haven't heard happen in a very big, real way. And I'm thinking it's because um, our operators and our restaurateurs who are in the city are city-focused, are, are, are city-centric. And then the people who are in the suburbs are suburb-centric. They're suburb-focused. There are very few uh, restaurant owners, very few restaurateurs who have restaurants in the city and have restaurants beyond. There are a couple notable exceptions. So here in New York, I'm aware of David Burke. David Burke's got places in the city. Now he has places in other cities. And now he's got places in suburban markets. One of them, he just uh, took over a restaurant here in the suburb where I live in New Jersey that's interesting John Frazier John Frazier has uh, restaurants in the city restaurants in other cities and uh, restaurants now in suburban markets I'm not seeing a lot of big, heavy-hitter restaurateurs uh, exploring the suburbs and there in New Zealand. It's very much um, on the forefront of their mind, at least it was a, it was a big enough uh, conversation that they decided to dedicate, you know, uh, a chunk of time, you know, an hour, hour and a half of the sessions uh, of the day to this conversation. And it wasn't an either-or, it was more of a yes-and. That there's room for both and there's real opportunity in the suburbs simply because consumer behavior has changed that the consumers used to uh, live at home come in work in the city maybe go out and have dinner in the city and then go home back out to the suburbs and that's not necessarily the case if somebody's working fridays at home they don't necessarily want to come all the way down for dinner on a friday night downtown that maybe they want a nice dinner they just want it out closer to them. So it's five minutes away, 10 minutes away, instead of a 25, 35, 45-minute downtown. And I thought that was a really profound um, observation. Certainly, not; they're not the first ones to make it. But it was the first real structured conversation um, that they had about this. And again, that big takeaway was not it's not an either-or. It's a yes-and. And if restaurateurs uh, saw more opportunities beyond just the town square, beyond the downtown area, I think they would see more opportunity for uh, for growth and expansion and, um, and, and uh, prosperity. That was something that I really enjoyed. I really loved that conversation. Finally then, I want to talk just briefly about the keynote presentation I gave. So uh, I was really touched and humbled uh, that they reached out, that they were willing to bring me and my family all the way down there to New Zealand um, to have this conversation. And the conversations I like to have are less tactical, more strategic. You guys certainly know that. This uh, podcast is called Restaurant Strategy. I like thinking big picture. I like giving you ideas and not telling you how to necessarily implement them, but getting you to shift your mindset about something so that you can say, oh, I never thought about it that way. Now let me see how that idea might apply. The conversation I gave, the, the talk I gave was called Adopting the Luxury Mindset. And it wasn't about how we should all go out and create luxury products. It wasn't about how the fine dining is here to stay and we all need to be doing fine dining. I'm um, quite the opposite. It was this talk about the difference between the commodity mindset and the luxury mindset. Basically, I start by saying, you know, a commodity is defined uh, by these three things, right? A commodity good says that all things being equal, a consumer will make their decision based on one of three criteria familiarity, convenience, or price. Meanwhile, a luxury good is an indulgence, it's something extra, it's something where people go out of their way to get something. And I made the point that dining out is a luxury. It is an indulgence. None of us need to do it. We don't do it to get fed. We do it because we don't feel like making food or we don't feel like going shopping and preparing the food and cleaning up the food. We can't prepare food as good as a chef could and we want to pamper ourselves. It is an indulgence to go have food that is better than what you can make at home. But make no mistake, if we just needed to feed ourselves, we could do it much easier, more efficiently, much cheaper by just going to the supermarket, getting food, bringing it home, and making it. But food culture, not only in this country, but all around the world, is, is, is growing in leaps and bounds. And it is a luxury. That was the point I wanted to make. So if it is a luxury, if dining out is a luxury, if what we offer is a luxury, then let's start thinking about it as a luxury. And the question I asked at the very end of the presentation was if I I told you that you had to get people to cross the street, go out of their way, pay extra for your product, what would you do? How would you convince them that the product is worth the inconvenience of going out of their way, spending a little extra time to get there, and maybe paying more than they would at uh, another restaurant. That is where we need to go because I'm tired of living and dying by these narrow profit margins. And I give all kinds of great examples over the course of the talk uh, of luxury goods that charge way more. They're not thinking about their margin. They charge what they can get away with. And, and I'm not talking about that in an ex- exploit uh, uh, exploitative uh, fashion. I'm talking about how We provide something great. You should charge what you can charge for that. That's capitalism. That's capitalism. And I talked to too many restaurant owners who who sort of suffer and struggle with their products, uh, suffer and struggle with profitability with paying their own bills. Because they're paying everybody else and just charging this and, and just leaning on this narrow, narrow margin. And so if they're whacked by inclement weather, if they're whacked by a shutdown, if they're whacked by, hey, their fridge goes out or their gas line goes out and they got to shut down for two days, it wipes out their profits for the entire month. And I want to get out of that. So the talk I gave was about the difference between the commodity mindset and the luxury mindset. And I invited everyone to adopt the luxury mindset. We went into greater detail certainly about it. But that's the gist of it. And I wanted to share that with you because I was really proud of the talk uh, that I gave, uh, and it seemed to be very, very well received. I love the conversations that I have, uh, that I had with owners and operators after the talk as they were talking to me uh, about how it opened their eyes and how it uh, they th- thought it uh, applied to their business, um, which just goes to the uh, why I do what I do. And then the last thing uh, that I wanted to say was that the the next day I was invited to give a workshop uh, and I was talking all about marketing. Certainly if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you know that uh, I spent a lot of time talking about what marketing is, right? That marketing's not the stuff. Marketing is about identifying a market that needs to be served, right? So there are two ways to market. Either we come up with a product and then go try to find customers for that product or we find a group of customers that need something and then we create a product that fills their need. And most restaurants in the world do the former, right, they create a product and then try to go find people to, you know, to fill the seats. But the best businesses in the world, in our industry and beyond, do the latter. Right? They figure out where there's a need, and then they go fill that need. And I wish we did more of that. And so what I did is I walked the uh, the attendees through a very specific framework, the ABCDs of marketing, and I introduced to them something I call the marketing, uh, the triangle principle, um, to show how to uh, take action um, to market uh, their restaurants. And it was, it was a really great, I've given that talk, I've given that workshop many, many times before, um, and I'm always um, taken by how well it's received. So that's what I did on the second day of that show show. That was my experience in Hospo. Hui. I also uh, got to podcast live uh, from the trade show floor. You probably heard that episode on Monday. If you haven't, uh, it's worth uh, going to check out because I got to sit down with six, seven, maybe eight different operators about their experience um, because I was really curious to know what are the differences between New Zealand and the U.S. market and what do they think about? What do they struggle with? There are things that are different uh, but there are way more similarities and I think there's some great insights. So if you didn't listen to that episode, go back and listen there because again, I had the great uh, privilege of being able to to podcast live from the trade show floor. Uh, And then obviously today I wanted to give you my takeaways. We have got a quick word from a sponsor and then I'm going to come back with my takeaways from the rest of my trip, from me being just a tourist, just a diner, and uh, some really, uh, really cool stories that I want to share with you after, again, a word from another one of our sponsors. Now, running a restaurant is already a tough job. You're busy keeping customers fed and employees paid while working with razor-thin profit margins. The last thing you should be worried about is if you're doing sales tax right. That's why you should consider automating sales tax for your restaurant point of sale system. Collecting and filing sales tax on your own can be stressful and it can be time consuming. They can leave your business vulnerable to accidentally missing tax payments or not having enough money in the bank to cover your tax obligations. Davo by Avalara simplifies sales tax for your restaurant and brings peace of mind through automation to help you pay the full amount you owe on time. Just integrate the Davo app with your existing POS like Clover or Toast or Spot On and set up your business and banking information. Davo will take uh, take sales data from your POS system, determine how much sales tax you collected each day, then it sends a request to your bank to have your sales tax put into a secure holding account. This keeps your sales tax separate from your revenue and helps reduce potential confusion about available funds. You get a daily email from Davo letting you know exactly how much sales tax is transferred. When your sales tax is due, Davo automatically remits your sales tax to the appropriate authority on your behalf, in full and on time is your restaurant that does on uh, on-time filing discounts uh, if it is then davo will au- is your uh, is your restaurant in a state that does on-time filing discounts if it is then davo will automatically send this refund back to your bank don't let uh, sales tax spoil your business stay on top of sales tax with automation from davo by Avalara, so you can spend less time in the back office and more time in front of house learn more at davo salestax.com/ Learn more at Davosalestax.com slash restaurant strategy and try Davo free for the first month. That's Davosalestax.com slash restaurant strategy. That link is also in the show notes. As I said, I just got back from New Zealand. I spent 10 days in the country. It's the furthest I've ever traveled. <laughs> All told, it's a 17-hour flight. Although we split it up, we flew to San Francisco, uh, took a little layover, and then flew the rest of the way from San Francisco to Auckland. Um, we spent the first four days in Auckland. Uh, so two days just sort of being a tourist, wandering around. Then we had the show for two days. Then we got on a plane and jumped down to the South Island to go to Queenstown. Queenstown um, is uh, is in the Central Otago region. It's a ski town, right, so it's right in between a, a bunch of big mountain ranges, uh, skiing, snowboarding. There's a giant lake there, the largest lake in, in New Zealand, uh, as I understand it. Uh, so there's all kinds of outdoor stuff, so uh, hiking and boating and fishing and skiing and snowboarding and uh, and bungee uh, bungee jumping and skydiving. Uh, neither of those we did, but we had a great time regardless, and it's also a really big food town. In fact, one of the things that I was struck with, right, and I wanted to share some of my takeaways from some of the meals that I had and I wanted to go through uh, some of the meals that I had but some of my takeaways were that uh, that New Zealand is a really thriving food culture Um, everything is local they they do bring in some stuff but for the most part um, it's much more expensive to import so they 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 work with a lot of domestic products now if you've seen Lord of the Rings you know how beautiful New Zealand is it's sprawling it's a really long It's two islands that run north to south um, and it goes, you know, really mild, right? So warm, really hot in the summer on the North Island, and then uh, really wintry on the South Island during the winter. And and, and you see, so you get a huge span. There's a lot of different microclimates there. Uh, again, mountains and uh, and, and coastals, uh, you know, coastal areas, beaches, uh, islands. Uh, th- there's a lot that they have there um, at their disposal. Sort of like California, right? It's this huge area with tons of great farmland and and um, and pastures, and they can produce a lot there. Um, New Zealand uh, was was really unique in that, and again, also they're an island, so they really lean on the uh, the ocean around them um, quite deeply. Over the course of my time, I, I mean, I, I, I knew I would get to have some great restaurants. What I was blown away by, and, and this is really important to state right up front, is just how good the food was. Everywhere, pretty much everywhere we went, there was one miss, one meal we had that was like eh, and it was uh, it was a little bit of a tourist trap. We, we probably knew walking in that it was a tourist trap. Still, we thought it would be better than it was. It was just okay, fine, so be it. One out of all these meals uh, being just mediocre, fine. It's not even worth uh, naming. It's not even worth talking about any further because all of the other meals we had uh, were uh, were so phenomenal. So. We first landed in Auckland, like I said, we spent uh, two days there just palling around. Uh, We did a dinner on uh, Saturday night, so we landed on Saturday morning. Uh, we spent the whole day just sort of uh, checking into the hotel, wandering around the city. We did lunch. Uh, we did lunch at White and Wong's, which is an Australian-New Zealand uh, group. Uh, they've got, I think, five different locations. It's Melbourne, Sydney, a couple in Auckland, and then even one in Queenstown. We went to one of the ones in Auckland. And it's sort of famous. Or it's Asian cuisine. But sort of famous for their dumplings. And so we said, oh, let's just sit down, have a glass of wine, and a whole bunch of dumplings. Um, so that's what we did. Uh, we we, uh, we sat there, and it was a great place just sort of... The <laughs> Um, go on cruise control, have a good meal. It's right by the water. Um, and we were sort of afraid it was going to be a little uh, a little bit of a tourist trap because it was right there in the downtown area, right on the water. You can imagine on a Friday, Saturday night, this place was was hopping. Uh, we were there obviously on a Saturday afternoon. It was much quieter, but the food was phenomenal. We, we were sort of blown away uh, by how good it was, how unique all of the dumplings were because um, we tried about four different kinds and then we got some other things on the side. Uh, we had a phenomenal time there. Then that night, even though my son was half asleep and could barely uh, stay vertical for the meal, we went to Mr. Morris. Mr. Morris is uh, sort of a newer restaurant in Auckland, um, really um, sort of a comfortable but austere dining room, very modern, um, really phenomenal food. Uh, the crispy chicken skin uh, that we did with like um, like a chicken liver uh parfait or pate over top, uh, was one of the real winners, but there was not a miss across the entire meal. Um, the, the the cocktail list was uh, curated and thoughtful. The wine list was great. Um, the service was gracious. We had a great time, even though my son was a gremlin and falling asleep. We brought him out of that meal, threw him right into bed back at the hotel. Then Sunday we got up, uh, the second day, and we went to Waheke Island. So Waheke Island is about a 30-minute, um, maybe 40-minute A ferry ride from uh, Auckland. And it's this island up to the northeast of Auckland, and there are like 50 different islands up that way. Uh, Weaheke is is sort of one of the most notable ones. It's one of the biggest ones, and it's built up. There are restaurants, there are things to do, there's all kinds of wineries there, there are hiking trails, so that's what we did. Took the ferry over, we went on a beautiful hike um, up into the hills there, um, just uh, unbelievable views. Uh, We were way overdressed for a hike that was that hard. Um, It was a very (laughs) difficult hike, even though it was Marked Beginner. We had a great time. We came back down. We hopped the shuttle bus, and we went deeper into town. We went up to a winery. Uh, we dropped somewhere, right in where a bunch of wineries were, and we just sort of went eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Uh We went to Tomotu Winery, not because we had heard a bunch of great things about it, but just because they had a restaurant uh, attached. And we said, oh, let's go. We'll try some wine, and we'll have lunch, because we're, we're now getting hungry after our hike. It was also the furthest, uh, the, the highest elevation. We just thought, let's just keep walking up the hill, because that'll probably have the best view so <laughs> Uh, what we were blown away by, so Tomotu was known uh, primarily for their reds, uh, and this in a, in a region that's uh, that's really known for their whites, and then like Pinot Noir's, Tomotu Winery was um, was doing a lot of Bordeaux varietals, so um, Cabernet and Merlot, and, and a little bit of Syrah, so like throwing in a little bit of that, that Rhone uh, flavor in there, but uh, mainly the the Bordeaux blends, um, and they did have a white, they did have a rosé that they make from like a second label, uh, but the Tomotu wines, they're really no, that label's really no. for their reds. So we go up there, we sit outside, and we're having, uh, we have lunch. Here's here's the thing. I was blown away by how phenomenal the lunch was. So I've been to uh, different wineries all across uh, this country, and some places have, uh, you know, have a restaurant or a little cafe or something. A lot of them I've found, uh, and, and I'm sure I'm not, I haven't been to as many, as many people out there, but I find a lot of times, like, the restaurant is an afterthought where the menu itself is an afterthought, that really the reason people go there is for the tours, for the wine tastings, to buy from the shop, and then if they're hungry, there's food there. There's wraps, there's sandwiches, there's burgers, there's even if they have a a more formal restaurant it's still like an afterthought um it's not the focus and i couldn't believe it that this restaurant was so phenomenal we got maybe four or five different dishes and split them uh split them all so like i don't know three or four apps and one entree and just sort of shared it because we weren't starving but we were hungry um the food was phenomenal every single dish was creative inventive uh, innovative in some way um the the combination of flavors and sort of and then again really all about the really all about the region um, really featuring the 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 produce and uh, the proteins that come from really close by we had a phenomenal time wine was also really great too it was really cool to taste that because I'm much more uh, familiar with a uh, New Zealand um, Sauvignon Blancs New Zealand uh, Pinot Noirs I hadn't tasted this kind of expression of the Bordeaux varietal, so we had a blast then we walk all the way down the hill we get back on the shuttle we went back to get on the ferry we went back to um, we went back down to uh you know to the uh to our hotel, which is right in the middle of things, right in what they call the CBD, the Central Business District. Uh, we ended up being exhausted, so we just got um, uh, we just got uh, in-room dining. We got room service that night, so really um, nothing special, and yet it was very special. I Couldn't believe it. Now the restaurant in the hotel where we stayed was Esther, which is sort of a notable restaurant anyway. So we knew the food would be decent, but even the even the room service was like was so good. Wake up the next day, went to the show. Was at the show all day long. Uh, they were gracious enough, my my hosts there. Uh, at the Restaurant Association in New Zealand, uh, Emma and Mike, uh, they took uh, they took me and my family out to One Tree Grill, which is right near One Tree Hill, which is sort of a famous park there uh, in Auckland. Uh, and it's phenomenal. It's a really uh, sort of an old classic restaurant there, um, punched way over. I mean, it's, it looks sort of unassuming, um, just sort of like a storefront restaurant. We walked in, uh, really gracious, really lovely, uh, very comfortable. Um, the wine lists were all on uh, iPads and stuff. So it was, it was sort of of cool um, they had nice uh, sort of modern touches to go with sort of like a, a more restrained uh, dining room but the food was phenomenal company was great it was great talking to them about um, sort of the state of the restaurant industry in New Zealand and what they do what the uh, the work that they do uh, with the association and all of that it was a it was a another great meal that knocked it out of the park I ended up doing the truffle uh, menu they did three courses super reasonable um, an appetizer an entree and a dessert all with uh, seasonal uh, black truffles that came right from New Zealand, because uh, now they have started growing uh, truffles down there. They tasted every bit as good as the Burgundy uh, black truffles, or even uh, or even the Italian truffles that I've had. In fact, uh, almost as expressive and flavorful as the classic Alba white truffles. And I know you may not believe me, but it was it was really really cool. So we went to One Tree Grill right near One Tree Hill. There. Next morning, then I got up. We went and taught this workshop at the Restaurant Association uh, headquarters at their main offices. And with a bunch of attendees who attended the show the day before. They came back and we did this workshop where we talked all about how we market our restaurants. It was great. It was well-received. Then I scooped up my uh, my family. We had a quick little sushi lunch, uh, which was great. As you can imagine, it's an island. Tons of fresh fish available. So we had a great sushi lunch. Uh, went to the airport. Flew down to Queenstown and then spent the rest of our vacation. It was another six or seven days down in Queenstown. And man, we were transported. The, it, it is one of the most beautiful places in the world. You land, the runway is like tucked between two mountain ranges. I mean, it's it's unbelievable when you land there. We stayed in a hotel right in the, uh, right off the lake, so right downtown. We just wanted to be within walking distance of the, of the shopping, of the uh, all the restaurants down there. For the next several days, uh, we went hiking. Uh, we did a couple of great hikes. Uh, we went skiing twice. Uh, we ended up um, driving around the area a little bit, and we went uh, on a bunch of great meals. Specifically, first night we landed there, we went to Beech Tree, which is this little craft beer bar. That's what we wanted. I said, I want to find like wings and beer or a burger and a beer or just like a chicken sandwich, like something low key. And we obviously found the place where all the locals were. So uh, Beech Tree, it was really cool. Uh, known for their craft beer. There were like 30 different craft beers on tap. It was upstairs, tucked away. We walked in. They were like, how'd you find us? What are you doing here? And we said, well, this is what we wanted. You guys seem perfect. So we sat at the bar. Uh, we got a cup. We got a a couple of sandwiches to split. We got some wings, which they were famous for, uh, which are a little bit different than what we do here in the country, as you can imagine. Uh, And what was really cool about the place is that there was all these people sort of packed, but they had all these board games on the wall on a shelf. And so everybody obviously was there. They grabbed board games, and they're sort of there with their friends, drinking beer, having conversation, and playing board games. Uh, And it was so Cool. Obviously, most of these people are locals, so they either uh, work in hospitality or uh, for um, any of the sort of outdoor activities that are there. Um it was just very obvious there were people who work in the, in the ski fields, who work at hotels and restaurants and all of that, which was, it was just cool. Felt like we were around our, our people there when we were, when we were there. So we, we, had a, we had a phenomenal time. They took really great care of us and got to try a bunch of New Zealand and Australian uh, craft beers, which uh, is always, always cool. We went to four great restaurants then, like really top-notch restaurants in, um, in Queenstown, places that we were told not to miss. We went to Rata. We went to the grill. We went to Sherwood. And we also went to Amosfield, which was not on our to-do list, but I was told when we were in Auckland talking to a bunch of different uh, restaurant owners, they said, oh my God, Amosfield is the best restaurant in New Zealand. It is over the top, uh, not for faint of heart, certainly wasn't cheap, uh, but it is an experience. And if you have a chance, you have to go. I'm going to lead with that because we did end up going. It was, I think it was like a 20 course tasting. It was the biggest meal that my eight-year-old son has ever done. It was definitely esoteric. And austere, and and it was incredible. We were one of four tables in the dining room that night. That was it. So it was obviously very, very intimate. And there was a performative nature to most of the courses, and it was really a celebration not only of New Zealand, but the Central Otago region. And by that, I mean something very specific. It's funny as we were going through the meal. It was like this is interesting. Well, this is so cool. It wasn't like going to the French Laundry. So I say the French Laundry is just like, you know, uh, American fine dining, you know, steeped in French traditions, right? That you go to French Laundry, you go to Per Se, every course, one after the other is like better and better and better and better. Onions and butter and leeks and, you know, it's on and on and on. There's, there are all kinds of things they can do to make things right taste better. Foie gras and caviar and all of this. This, Amos Field, was along the same lines. It was a multi-course tasting experience for all intents and purposes, even though uh, there's, no, um, there's no Michelin Guide in New Zealand, which is a crime after visiting there. Um, even though there's no Michelin Guide there, this is uh, has all the markings of a three Michelin star restaurant. But here's the difference. Somebody asked me, um, uh, somebody, one of my colleagues uh, that I work with, one of the other coaches I work with said, was it the most delicious food you had all trip? And I said, no, but i don't think it was trying to be i think what they were trying to do was showcase the region showcase the country really a celebration of what they have there and that i think it did brilliantly and i wouldn't have changed a thing for example there was a um, there was a turnip dish Right, the turnip dish was um, was a bunch of different like sort of iterations of turnip, and it was cold, like sliced turnip with like a, a chilled broth um, with fresh thyme over top of it. It was so expressive, but was it the most delicious turnip dish I ever had? No, but they could have added a bunch of butter and onions and uh, and warmed it up and and added caviar to it and and really blown me away. But what did blow me away was just how. Um, how specific it was, that it was a celebration of that ingredient in the middle of winter in Central Otago, New Zealand. It was, it was really all about that, showcasing what they were all about. Right. We had um, uh, we had, uh, um, uh, green greenbone a couple of times. Um, and green bone is sort of an interesting fish. We had a couple different expressions of it. The first one we had in the very first course was like a tartare served almost in a little ice cream cone like they would do at French Laundry. Except this was served in the frozen fish heads. So the little ice cream cone was sitting right on top of the open mouth. It was very um, off-putting. Um, and unusual, and uh, and, a, and a conversation starter, and right from the jump, you you understood like, oh, they're trying to do something different here. Uh, we had a uh, we had a, um, a course later, probably one of my favorite courses, which was that same green bone fish, which is a sort of mild white flaky fish. Um, they're specifically known, it's called green bone, uh, as we came to learn, because it feeds all, all, only on plants. And so because it eats so much plants in its diet, it actually turns the bones green. So when you fillet the fish, the bones are green. The fish was sort of buttery and, and, and like a flaky white fish. But what they did is they put what they call white bait, these tiny little bait fish, over top Somebody, some cook, spent the time, spent hours, I'm sure, laying hundreds of little fish over top of this thing, and then they gave you a little slice of this. So you got part of the green bone fish, which was the main, and then the, the white bait fish over top of it. Go check out Amos Field, their Instagram uh, feed. It, it, it's it got this dish, and it was uh, every bit lived up to expectation. It's the one my son was really excited for. It was probably his favorite. The other thing that noted that we uh, that we noted about again, there was a performative nature to most of the courses. Um, there was something they had to sauce, to to fillet, to to light on fire. Uh, one course they brought us out to outside to the courtyard where there was a, a fire going, and they were cooking a whole octopus um, over in this pot that was like three hundred years old. They were cooking that over the fire, so we went out and had like a little octopus taco for one of the courses. That was really cool. That was fun every course had like a little uh, a little touch to it um, and again, everything was just trying to be and an, an, an be a celebration of this region. Uh, my son was a rock star all through it he loved sort of the um, the 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 surprise nature the the what comes next um, aspect of it uh, we got to obviously have the the wines Amosfield is a winery uh, they're mostly known for their wines again in the spirit of another restaurant that wasn't an afterthought but was very much as much the star of the show as the wines were so all the wines we had over the course of the meal uh, were from um, were from the Amosfield winery it was a very very, very cool experience. And it was unusual. It was quirky. But in the end, um, the service was great. The hospitality was great. The food was very, very cool. I'm so glad we listened to really smart people who told us to go uh, because it was one of the highlights of our trip there. Now the other places we went to, uh, Rata Rata um, used to be um, uh, Chef uh, Josh Emmett. Uh, now it's uh, no longer his restaurant, uh, but they're still working at a very very high level. That was really cool. Again, stripped down dining room, so uh, so high end fine dining, probably equivalent of a one Michelin star restaurant. But no tablecloths, just just plain wood tables, simple silverware, uh, very low music, open kitchen. It was uh, it was it was a really um, cool experience. We all had a great meal there. Um, the grill is sort of like um, uh, sort of like upscale casual food was phenomenal food was really great cocktail program was really great there it's right on the water you can't beat the views that was really fun and then for our last night we went to Sherwood and I wanted to share this experience because we said one of my clients I have a client down there in Wellington he said oh you should really go to Sherwood and then we heard from multiple people saying you should go to Sherwood Sherwood is a hotel or a, a you know a resort, I'll say. But it was almost like like somebody took a motel and made it like funky hipster, because there are all these little buildings with maybe six or eight different rooms, like a like a motel might be. So you went to you know uh, there was building A, building B, building C. I'm making this up. They weren't A, B, C, but you went to different buildings and it was all sort of you know back in the woods up the hill. You had to find it um and then there was sort of the the central check-in was a building right in the center and there was sort of like a lobby there and there was a game room with ping pong and shuffleboard and and stuff like that nearby and we were saying well, where's the restaurant and they sort of walked us there because otherwise we wouldn't have found it the restaurant again was this little funky building and um And it was really unique. They're famous for the flatbreads. They were famous for their lamb shoulder, which New Zealand lamb is sort of uh, known the world over. I had had a lamb a couple of times over the course of my trip. And, uh, and they were good this was phenomenal it was a great way to finish the trip and I uh, and I was sort of amazed at how like funky cool it was they had really cool mocktails they had really cool cocktails um, really interesting uh, wine list again another open kitchen I think they take pride on that connection between diner and uh, and chef uh, diner and cook um, which was which was cool uh, music was cool everything was really fun about the experience is a great way to sort of say goodbye to New Zealand, a great, a great meal to have as a send-off. Here's my, full, here's my full circle thing. I get up to pay, and most of the time in New Zealand, sometimes you pay at the table, but most of the time you pay at the register on your way out. And so as I did that, I went to pay on my way out, and guess what? They didn't take American Express, which blew me away, given what I'd learned about it and now seeing the kind of place they were, that it was sort of like, like young and hip and cool, and I, I couldn't believe that they didn't accept American Express. Here's my last takeaway from this: is that New Zealand is a no-tipping culture, and one of the things that I hear a lot in this country, uh, in the United States, is that you know we can't get rid of tipping ever because otherwise servers won't do a good job, right? That that's the only incentive we have to give them to do a good job. Like the only reason they're nice to the guests is because they know the guests pay them at the end of the meal. It's the only reason they're warm, polite, and give good service. And I fundamentally reject that because I'm in. Inco- all kinds of different countries that have no tipping. And New Zealand, which for all intents and purposes, they speak English, it was a similar culture to us um, as we went through there. Um, I just found that the service was phenomenal every step of the way. So where there's a will, there's a way. And I think tipping is this institution in this country um, that is being chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. But what I reject is this idea that you don't get good service because people aren't being tipped. It was fundamentally proven wrong over the course of my 10 days in New Zealand. Some of the best service I ever had, some of the best food I've ever had. We had a great time, they took great care of us. Incredible hospitality pretty much everywhere we went. That's my last takeaway. Um, That's what I wanted to share with you. I hope you got something out of this. I hope you got something out of the interviews that, uh, that aired last episode. I had a great time in New Zealand. I want a uh, public thank you to the Restaurant Association of New Zealand for inviting me down there, for having me, for all the folks, for their great hospitality, for the people who appeared on uh, last uh, last episode, the previous episode, who sat down and talked with me about sort of what they struggle with, what they're concerned with, what what's going well for them. Um, I really appreciate it. It helps me share their story with all of you uh, out there. Appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. And I will see you next time.